Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. If you just walked in, my name is Pastor Chris, and we're glad you're here with us this morning. And uh, we're in a series of messages called Rebuilding Hope. Have you been enjoying uh, the mess, the series on Nehemiah so far? I know God has been teaching me a lot through it, and I just pray that that has uh, been coming through to you as we are looking to God's word together. Um, I also just want to take a moment and uh, encourage those of you that have been taking part in our devotional that we're doing. I don't know, many of you may not know, we have a daily devotional that we're sending out that goes right along with the series. So everything that we're talking about, everything I'm talking about in uh, God's word today, will be emailed to you, all those verses, over the next five days with a short devotional attached to each of those thoughts. And it's just a great way. I think for me, I've just been so blessed being a part of those. Some of our staff members, uh, if you've been reading them, have been writing some of those devotionals, some of our pastors. And uh, it's been just stretching us, growing us. And it's a part of, I talked and I referenced living a changed life. We talked about that back in January, that if we're changed lives, changing lives, that means that our life has been changed. And the C in change, it's an acronym. The C is for connected to the body. That's what groups are all about. The N in change, C-H-A-N. There's an N in change in case you wondered. Uh, the N is nurturing your spiritual growth. And that's about the daily disciplines of spending time in God's word. So I just want to commend those of you. We had over 400 people sign up for that devotional. And I just hope that you're receiving it, that you're being blessed by it, that God is challenging you every day to take a step deeper in your relationship with him. If you'd like to get signed up, uh, you can go right to evangelchurch.com. There will be an uh, image right there on the front page you can click on and get signed up and those will be emailed right to you or you could read them every day by going to our Facebook page. Um, but as we do that together, God's been doing a great work in his word. I love when we can dive into God's word and we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3 today and we're going to cover the entire chapter of chapter 3. Um, but as we do that, I also like to show you how God's word, we call God's word his timeless truths and I know that the word of God is living and active. And for it to be living and active means that it is applicable to us today. This is not just a history book. This is not just a, story, a, a series of fables and fairy tales that we could draw some neat principles from. This is the living word of God that has the power to change our lives and so whenever I say that God's word is timeless means that it applies today and has the power to uh, change and affect things even now as we walk in obedience to God's word and what he has revealed to us. Um, and I just have seen over the last several months an amazing way that the first two sermons that we have talked about out of the two chapters of Nehemiah have just been a reality of what we have walked through as a church. So if you go back with me to uh, think about our first week that we were here and sharing on Rebuilding Hope, we talked about this question. It came out of Nehemiah chapter 1, and, and the question was, who cares? It's a big question. Does anyone care about the things that God cares about? God asks that question whenever he sees the brokenness of this world. Who cares? And you know who God wants to care? His people. The people who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. The people that have a new heart should care about the things that matter to the heart of God. Does that make sense to you today? So if those things need to matter to us, and our hearts should be broken for the things that break the heart of God. And so Nehemiah, he cared enough to do the same things that we should care enough to do. To ask, to weep, to pray, and to go. To go and do something about it. And as we went through a series of messages last year and, um, and we were digging into God's word, we were hit with the reality of what was happening, not in the United States, but around the world. That Christians, last year, right around this time, 
in the Middle East were given the opportunity to convert to Islam, pay an exorbitant tax, leave everything behind, or die for their faith. ISIS, this terrorist cell that many had not even known about, had risen to power, and now you, I mean, now you know who ISIS is. Then we didn't know who ISIS was. Start moving, taking cities by storm, and we were beginning to hear tales of things happening, atrocious things happening, terrible things happening. And I'm just so proud as a church that many of you cared enough because some of you have family, have loved ones, have people that you know and pray for. We cared enough to ask the questions. Other people could have wanted to shy away from things like that, but we asked the question. And as we learned the answer and saw the reality of what was happening, it caused us to have broken hearts over it. We wept. We sat in God's presence. We, we prayed. We asked God to, to be with them, to be near to them. Can you remember, church? We prayed. We did what we could. We even then made ourselves available to God. And when we do that, in the same way that God did for Nehemiah, whenever we ask God to send the answer, he often sends the opportunity. And God sent us an opportunity in the beginning of the year that we would have never imagined. Would you be willing as a church to build a church in Iraq, in a refugee community that doesn't have access to the gospel, that ISIS, they lived in, they've been displaced from Mosul for, because of ISIS and now they're in a safe place, but they have nothing. Will you build a church for them? That would cost $100,000 and a lot of time and we came and we made ourselves available, church, and we went through the planning process. Now we're into the second week's message, right? So we had the patience to wait on the Lord. If we go on to the next slide, we waited on God because it was a God-sized goal. Um, it was a big goal. It was bigger than we were. So as God brought that to us, we waited on him. We saw the planning come together. We shared it with you. And without you coming together and partnering with us, it would not happen. And we persevered through challenges and any obstacles that came along the way. And I'm so excited to stand here today and tell you that we have received video that shows the now near-completed facility being used for ministry. And I want to take a moment as we begin this message to just show you what happens whenever we unite together, partner in what God wants to do, and we can see God-sized goals become reality. So take a look at this. This is a video straight from Iraq from Project Refuge. And by the way, it is actually now being called by them, not just Project Refuge, but El Amal. And it's amazing to consider what El Amal is. It means the hope. On a series where we're talking about rebuilding hope, they named it The Hope. So take a look at this video. Hello, we are at the ML compound. We're here at the fifth floor. It's been renovated, uh, painted, and uh, with electricity, air conditioning, sound system, and furniture, uh, alongside with five classrooms all furnished and air-conditioned for uh, weekly meetings here. Many activities are taking place here actually every week, especially the women ministry. My wife is, is a program for every Wednesday. They uh, gather here for discipleship and for counseling. Just yesterday, I have some pictures from yesterday for about 160 women were gathered here for about two hours seeing uh, Christian films and literature. We want to say thank you for uh, Evangel Church, who they were responsible for covering the cost of this renovation of Al Amal project. Uh, I'm sure the Lord will bless you abundantly for this great work. Bless you.
Church, that's a God-sized goal becoming a reality. And just to think about just a few months ago, to be able to say, when we looked at a shell of a building and said, could this become a church? Could this become a school? Could this become a refuge for the refugee? To see that lives are being transformed every week, just thank you. Thank you for seeing the vision of what God wanted to do, and thank you for being a part of it. Because we get to celebrate now, not what we have done, but what God has done. He's done a miracle, and we're so thankful to be able to do that. And those things matter so much to the heart of God, and, and, uh, and I'm just thankful to be a part of that. That's why I believe that God's word from Nehemiah is just so uh, applicable to us right where we are today. And so as we get into chapter 3, I want to take some time, and we're going to talk about more about these God-sized goals and how they become a reality in our lives so we went through the foundational work of what that looks like to really begin to get the vision for it. And it was about having a renewed vision and allowing God to um, allow our eyes to see what his eyes see. That's what it means to have vision is that we're seeing what the Lord wants to do. Not just that we could literally see physically, but we could see uh, the future of what God is desiring to bring forth. And so as uh, Nehemiah was able to receive that vision of what God was desiring to do. He was able to share that and he rallied the people to make a commitment that they said, we will arise and rebuild. We will put our hands to this good work. Now, as we get into chapter 3 and moving forward, over the next weeks, we're going to see the tactical and the practical way that the work gets accomplished. And so as we do that, I want to just take a moment and I want to talk about these three areas that are so important as we begin to look at the work that took place. And the first question is the question that grounds us on the foundation that we've been talking about. The first question we always have to ask about the work that God would have us to do is not what we are supposed to do. I think often that's what we do. When we know there's a project, when we know there's something that God's calling us to accomplish, do you know what I want to know? I want to know the details. I want to know the what. I want to know the what. I want to know the how. I want to know the who. I want to know all those questions. But there's one question, and there's actually a book that is titled this. It's a book on, uh, on leadership. It's called Start With Why. The question you always have to start with is why. If you don't start with the question why in your life, you can often begin to live without a sense of purpose and direction. You begin living to just do something, and you could lose your passion, your love, and your drive for it. You know why? Because you forgot why you were doing it to begin with. If your marriage just becomes a series of chores, and a series of you just trying to get through and pay the bills and go through all the motions, and you forgot why you got into it in the first place, you're not in a good place, right? If your family life just becomes a series of obligations, but you don't remember why you have a family to begin with, it can easily cause a difficult situation. If we go on doing without remembering why we're doing what we're doing, we run the risk of our hearts becoming disconnected from our work. And so we have to ground ourselves in the answer to the question why. It's so fascinating, the what. And as we get into those details, just as we did last, uh, last service, people, you know, you may see things just as I have that I've never seen before in God's word. And it's fascinating. But the why is the thing that motivates our heart and our passion for the work that was happening then and the work that God wants to do in your life today. And so let's understand the answer to the question, why? Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. We talked about that before. He was someone that would protect the king. He was someone that lived in, in luxury, although his job was very dangerous. He was taken good care of because of the fact that he was always putting his life on the line, being the cupbearer to the king. 
As he was there, he got a vision from God to go and be a part of rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem that lied in ruins. And as he did that and made himself available, he didn't do it because it sounded like an exciting or fun thing to do. He didn't do it because the Bible says that he had a background in construction and Nehemiah was just itching to get out and put his hands to something. It wasn't just because he wanted the walls to look pretty again and they didn't look very pretty. It wasn't for any of those reasons. The, the why was a much deeper reason than any of those things. It had so much more to do with not the work physically was, that was going to take place. It was really the work spiritually and what the work represented. Because the work that he was going to go and put his hands to was so much more important than just a construction project. It had ramifications for worship. It had ramifications for a whole people's identity, for their relationship with God. The work that he was going to do was so much more important than we often give it credit for. It wasn't just an amazing construction feat. People have written books that aren't even Christians on what Nehemiah did because there are so many amazing leadership principles that come out of it. And they're saying this guy was just amazing and the leadership and the delegation and all these things. And we can go into all of that, but if we don't really get in our hearts the reason why he did it, we could miss the big thing that God's trying to reveal through his word at this time. So let's take a look at this together. As we look back at the why, we go back into chapter 1. And we realize that Nehemiah started with a question. He questioned his brother when he came uh, back from Jerusalem. He said, what's going on among the people of Jerusalem? What's going on with the city? How are the walls? He said, the people are a remnant. The walls are ruined. The city is a reproach. It's completely vulnerable. People are coming and going, pillaging. They're doing anything that they want to. When Nehemiah heard this, he wept. He wept bitterly before the Lord. His heart was broken. Now, some of you, if your favorite restaurant closes down, does it cause you to weep bitterly before the Lord for weeks? Some of you maybe. I don't know. Your favorite show goes off the air. Does it cause you to weep bitterly before? Like, like things coming to an end, things being in a bad place. Even a fire in a home of someone that you know or care about. I mean, this was, this was bad, but Nehemiah's response was so much greater than I would have even imagined. Even if a city had been sieged, Whenever you heard about what happened with Mosul and areas over in Iraq and you hear that the whole city was compromised and taken over by ISIS, your heart was grieved, but did you weep for days over that? Nehemiah weeped for days because the city wasn't just a city. The city of Jerusalem was not just a city that was beautiful and fortified. It wasn't just a place. It represented the presence of God among his people. Now, if you go all the way back to Genesis, and I promised myself that I'd do this so much quicker than I did at last service, you start in Genesis 1, and God creates a man. He creates a place for them to be in relationship, the Garden of Eden. That's a place that God dwelled with his people. After we sinned, we were cast out. And when we were cast out of there, that means that the relationship was broken. There was no longer a place for God to dwell with his people. And so God allowed humanity to now live vulnerable, open, over time, as civilizations began to start, you know what they had? They had fortified cities. And those are places that they could find that protection, the protection they once had in their relationship with God. They no longer had, so they tried to find it in their own cities, in their own places. And as they did that, they found comfort, success, um, advancement, economic, pro economic prosperity, all the things that they would want. There's a man named Abram who was enjoying all that prosperity and 
the God of heavens and earth spoke to him one day. He did not even know who this God was. He worshiped many gods. And he said, go leave everything. Leave the city, leave the wall, leave the protection, leave the reward, leave everything and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to make your descendants like the grains of sand on the seashore. And Abram went by faith. He trusted God and he went. God promised him a time when there would be a land, a place that God would dwell with his people again. And he was going to make Abraham the first recipient of that promise and he called him to go. That's caused a series of events to happen and transpire that ultimately led to the people of God being in a different place. Those same people that God promised would become a multitude, did become a multitude, but they were a multitude of slaves living in Egypt. And as they were living in Egypt, they were not in the place that God wanted them. They were living in slavery. And God said, I've heard their cry and I'm going to finally bring about my promise to bring them to a place where they will dwell, where I will be their God, where they will worship me, where we can enjoy the benefits of the relationship that I have promised. And so he led them through Moses' leadership out through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And as they were in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land, the land that God had been promising for generations, God began to give them a foretaste of what it would look like for him to dwell among his people. So he led them as a pillar, as a cloud, as fire. He showed his glory to them in that sense. He showed his presence in a way that they could see, that they could follow, that they could rally around. And so they eventually created the tabernacle. It was a place where God could tabernacle, dwell among his people. And so they set it up exactly as it was, but this was not a permanent structure. And as they were there, this finally now represented a place for God to dwell among his people. And they could worship him and perform the rituals and sacrifices so they could have this relationship. Time went on, and eventually God brought them into the promised land, and then he gave them the plans to create a temple, a permanent house where his name could dwell, where his glory could dwell, where his presence could be found. It was there in the Holy of Holies. So you had the temple, you had the courts, you had the temple, you had the inner parts, and you had the innermost part, which was the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God dwelled. And it was so strong there. And no one whose heart was not right before God could even enter in. Priests would walk in, high priests, and if their heart was not right before God, they would fall dead in the presence of God. They created a practice where they would tie a rope around the high priest so they could drag him out if he fell dead in the presence of God. This is serious. But this was the place that God's presence dwelled. And so they began to call Jerusalem Mount Zion, the holy and heavenly city. The place where God's glory dwelled. Like when you look to Jerusalem, it was like you saw God's glory just there represented his protection, his favor, his presence. It was a place for his presence to rest. And that was what the city represented. Was the hope of the people? Was their spiritual relationship with God? Was everything to them? It wasn't just about a fortified city. It wasn't just about pristine buildings. It was about their identity as a people and their relationship with God. And you know what it meant? that the walls were ruined, that the temple had been destroyed, that all this had happened, it meant that their lives spiritually, their identity was bound up in the condition of that city. So what does it say to their relationship with God if that's what the city looked like? It represented what their lives looked like and what their hope looked like. It was in ruins. So Nehemiah knew that as one of those people, one of those descendants, he knew 
that if there was ever going to be hope for his people again, then Jerusalem needed to be restored so that it could one day be the place again where God's presence and his glory could dwell. And so Nehemiah did what he did for one reason. And we would just understand this is the purpose. He did it. And I I feel like we say this phrase so often, so please don't miss it. He did it for this reason, for the glory of God. We normally say we do this, I do it just for the, to God be the glory, for the glory of God. You know what that literally means? We do something for the glory of God, it means this, that whenever someone looks at it, they see the presence and power of God at work. When you do something for the glory of God, it's so that God could be glorified again. To glorify God means to exalt him, means that he would be lifted up, meaning his name would be lifted high. So he did it literally for the glory of God, so that God's name and his presence could dwell among his people again. And so what he was taking part in was not just a construction project, but he had the why deep in his bones. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he was doing it for the glory of God so that the world could see the living God again. That's the reason. Church, the same is true for us. Whenever we set out to do anything that we do in our relationship with God, we need to ask the question of why. And there's really the greatest and highest answer to those questions is this. We do what we do in this life for the glory of God. We do it so that people will see. You're quiet today. I hope you're trekking with me. I hope that you do what you do in this life for the glory of God. Too often there are many people that you see on television all the time, you know who they're doing it for? They're doing it for the glory of themselves. They're doing it so that their name would be lifted high. How many things are you doing in this life so that your name would be lifted high for the glory of self? How many things are you doing in this life for the glory of God so that his name would be lifted high? Nehemiah wanted God's name lifted high in Jerusalem again. He wanted there to be a place where God's promises and his presence could dwell once again. And so he got to work understanding the purpose of why he does what he does. So you need to ask yourself that question as you walk through this life. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it for my own glory? Am I doing it so my name would be lifted high? Am I doing it so someone else's name would be lifted high? Or am I doing it for the glory of God? Nehemiah did what he did for the glory of God. And as he did that, we can begin to see now the work that actually uh, took place there. And there are people that did now what they did. They were all unified in this vision. And that's so important, the unity that happened among the people, that they decided that they would partner together, meaning that they would be unified. There's something that we need to understand together, and you need to get this deep in your heart. We are better together. We are better. Look at someone next to you. Say, we're better together. You look at your spouse. Tell them, we're better together. We are better together. When we are together, when we are unified, Jesus said, he said this, I pray in John 17 that they will be one just as we are one so that the world will know that you sent me. Jesus was literally saying this, that one of the greatest evidences that would be present after he returned to the Father would be the unity of his people. You know why? Because many times we can say we're better together, but we live disconnected from each other, separated, fractured relationships, tension all around. We're better together. And God wants his people to be unified. 
He doesn't want to come back to a fractured bride. He wants to come back to an unblemished bride, one that is together, one that is unified, one that has the bond of peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. We're better together. And the people saw just how much better they were when they were together because Nehemiah had this ability to bring together a disconnected group of people and allow the impossible to happen through their lives. So let's take a look here. And I promised myself that I would save you. I timed it a few times. It took me between eight to nine minutes to read through the entirety of the chapter and trip over all the names. While you could have laughed and put it on Facebook, uh, all the ways that I mess up these names, I said, I'm not going to do that. I found a a better way to show you who took part in the work and where they were working. But I want to read to you the first verse of chapter 3. It says this, Then Eliashib the high priest arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and hung its doors. We take a look here, and what you will read, if you haven't yet read through chapter 3, and you're going to have a chance this week, I hope you will spend time just reading through verse by verse. It shows you the list of every person that worked on the wall, every person that took part in this. And although everyone is not named, it goes through every people group. What we see here are 38 different individual workers named and 42 different groups of people being identified as taking part in this. The amazing thing about it when you read it is this. You see that there are both men and women working. You see, which we see in the very first verse, that as the work begins, it begins with the the high priest. The person whose whole responsibility is just around worship and around things that are happening in the temple, he puts all that aside and he gets dirty. He gets right into it, doing things that he isn't equipped, doesn't even know how to do. But guess what? They get to work. They get to work because they know this is what God's called them to. Nothing is beneath any of the people. We only see that once happen, and you'll see that in verse 5 where it's beneath someone, and Nehemiah calls them out. I would hate to be on a list like that. And at the end of time, and say, all the people rallied to what God has, but it was beneath that person. They were too good for it. We see them come together. And so you see priests and the clergy and lay people working together. You see different tradesmen. You see uh, goldsmiths. You see perfume makers. You see people that, that, you know, they weren't there spraying the walls with perfume. They were there doing whatever they could do. Nothing was beneath them. They were willing to put their hands to the good work and be unified together. You saw represented every part of society, all kinds of people, priests, Rulers, men, women, craftsmen, and even people outside the city, men from Jericho. People did not even allow their own um, national and, and town pride to get in the way of the work that God wanted to do. We saw people who in no other circumstances ever came together and were unified as one, become one. Why? Because they realized the why and they put their hands to the work that God wanted to accomplish. Nothing was too small for them. And I love this phrase right here because this is the unifying phrase right next to him. Just think of it like a chain link going around. What we have here is I have a graphic that can represent and show you what this looked like in action. So let's put that up. This right here is the walls of Jerusalem. And this is where they built. And you can see all the, all the uh, look like equal signs, the two lines there that run parallel. Those are all the gates. And then all the words around it are all the names. So we're going to zoom into the first part. And you should be able to read this now. This shows where the different parts of the walls were, and then the colors show what part they were working on. So you see the sheep gate right there on the inside, and that's where the priests and the high priest were working. You can see the goldsmiths and the merchants working right outside of there, the men of Jericho, of Zucar. You can go right around and see each gate 
how there are people that have been specifically assigned to that area. The amazing part, and we'll learn about this in just a little while, is that each gate holds a specific purpose as well. And so people are being matched up and working in specific areas for the unified purpose of what God wants to accomplish so that his name would be made known again so that he would be glorified and lifted up. As we go down the wall here, we see more. We see right there, if you look uh, on the orangish-yellow part, the uh, Tekoites, they were working, and it says there in verse 5 that next to them, the Tekoites made the repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. So we see these aristocrats that put their nose up to the work that's happening there. It's beneath them. They were too important in their own eyes to be a part of the work that God was doing. I don't know about you, but I never want to find myself in that place. I never want to be in a place where God has called me to do something and I've allowed something as easy as pride, and we all suffer from pride, to get in the way of me taking part in what God has been preparing me for. Whether it's picking up a stone, whether it's cleaning a floor, whatever it is, don't allow the work of God to feel beneath you. Because Jesus was the one who was willing to get down and humble himself as a servant and literally wash the feet of his disciples. He was the one who was willing to leave all the incredible conditions of heaven. Imagine that, right? And humble himself and become a servant and come here and live and feel and experience what we experience and taste our brokenness. If we're the people of God, we have the heart of God, nothing like that should be beneath us. We should be willing to put our hands to whatever God would put in front of us. They weren't willing to. Many, as you continue to go around the wall here, they're just continued to build up. You can see so many people working on this section. You know why? Because when Nehemiah gives his account in chapter 2 of him walking around, this was the point right as he's passing the fountain gate, he couldn't go any further because the wall was so broken there that that he couldn't even get through, so he turned around and went right back to the valley gate. So you can see it represented by how many people are working on that section of the wall. You come back around and you go down to the bottom part of the wall here, and we'll go to the next slide, and you can see the rest of the work that happened on this end. And this is all the people that are working together right next to one another, doing the work that God has called them to. It's amazing to see this picture. But what I love about it is that it's not just a picture of the work happening to the walls, it's actually a spiritual picture of something that God points to much later in Scripture. If you look in Isaiah chapter 4, God talks about a day that would be coming. And that day ultimately came with Jesus. But we see a picture of it right here in front of us. And he's talking about the day of the Lord. A time when God wouldn't just dwell in Jerusalem. A time when it wouldn't just be about God's presence and glory being seen in the innermost part of the Holy of Holies, but a time when his presence would break through and he would dwell with his people the way he has always desired to dwell with his people. And one of these promises and these prophecies are spoken of in Isaiah chapter 4, starting in verse 2. It says this, The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious in that day, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who has left Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Underline that. Note that right there. 
that he who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion, over her assemblies, assemblies, pay attention to that word right there, a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night over all the glory will be a canopy. Over all the glory will be a canopy. We continue to go through here in verse 6. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat of day and a refuge of protection from the storm and the rain. What God was saying was all of this imagery that's being used there was imagery for the temple. It was imagery for where God's glory would dwell. Remember the, the pillar, the fire, the cloud, all those things were representative of God's presence, God's glory. That was all now in the temple, in the holy of holies. God said, there will be a time when my presence will stretch out over the people. They will become like a temple. They will become the place where my glory will dwell. They will become, as they come together, over all their assemblies, those who remain in Jerusalem, will be those who my glory will shine out from and rise from. And when you look at them, you will see the glory of God. So he's pointing to a time when that would happen. Here's the beautiful part. Look at this picture. What do you see at every part of every wall? People. All together, stretched out. Do you know what it was showing? It was showing a picture of what the people of God would one day look like. Every nationality, every person, every tongue, every creed coming together unified as the body of Christ, the temple of God. What does Paul say? You now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Many of us, we take that as a singular uh, idea that, hey, you individually, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That was actually given in, in the Greek. It's in the plural. That means you collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now we could, say, we could take that individually and devotionally. We often want to do that with scripture, but oftentimes being addressed to a large group of people. Do you know this, church? We together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God dwells among us. Dwells in us, dwells among us. The spirit of the living God is in us, but he dwells among us. We are now like a temple. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says this, that you also, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood so that you can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying this, that the people of God will be brought together and we would now live and exist for the glory of God, to be used by God for his purposes and we would now be those that carry his presence, his spirit into the world. When people look at us, they see him. And I love what Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 14. This is such an obscure verse that you may have never seen before. But he talks about this day again. This day that was coming, that ultimately came in Jesus. And he says this, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will look like the bowls before the altar. Go to the next verse. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
and all the sacrifice will come and take them and boil them and, and there will no longer be Canaanites in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Zechariah is saying something that, that is incredible to the people that are hearing it. For every item that was used in the temple during worship, they would take it and they would need to know that it could only be set apart. It could be consecrated, sanctified, set apart for this one reason, for worship. For people to be able to worship the high priest and the priest. And so it would have an inscription on it that would say this, holy to the Lord, set apart. That's what holy means, for the Lord. Set apart for worship. And so these items were taken, and if a priest would walk over and someone would need something, he would look, no, holy to the Lord, set apart for the Lord. You can use it for no other reason. It's now set apart for worship unto God. And so there would be these inscriptions on those things in the temple. They, here, here's what Zachariah says. There's a time that's coming when every horse that walks, everything that has a bell, the bells on the horses will be inscribed holy to the Lord of hosts. There will be a time it's coming when in every home inside of Jerusalem, when you walk in and you go through the dishes and you look on the back, holy to the Lord of hosts, set apart for God's worship. These, there will be a time when every person will now bear the inscription to say this, holy, set apart to the Lord. He was talking about a time when there would be a holy people. And when you think about that idea, another phrase that we so often throw around, set apart, that these people would be a set apart people. They were set apart for the work of God. They were set apart for the purposes of God. They were set apart above their agendas, above anything else. They said this, holy, set apart to the Lord of hosts. This will be the reality. It's a picture of what happened in Nehemiah's day. It's one of the few pictures we have. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you read about the leader, the one person who did all the work. Nehemiah went around, he built the whole wall. Nehemiah did it and then the people kind of got, you know, Moses told them and they kind of, you know, got on board a little bit but, but really failed. This is a story not just about a leader but it's about the people all being set apart for God's purpose, all going in and doing the work that God has for them. And as they did that, God did an amazing work in and through them. The great gift we see in this passage, it's a picture of what God has now purposed the body of Christ to look like. That nothing is before us, nothing is beneath us, that we link arms and we link hearts. We come from all different places. We look different. We are no longer uh, divided by Jew and Gentile or nationality or tribe or tongue. At the, knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee has bowed, every tongue has confessed, and today we are the people of God, marked, set apart for the holy God. We are set apart for him to do the work that he has for us. That's what we see in Nehemiah's day. That's what we see a picture of taking place. It's a picture of what has now come into our lives because of Jesus. So the reason is that we would do it for the glory of God. The people that did it were a holy, set-apart people. Are you living a life that's set apart for the Lord? Are you living a life today? When you look at everything in your life, how much of it carries your inscription or someone else's inscription or some other thing? And how much of it can you say, no, set apart for the Lord. My first responsibility is to worship him. My first responsibility is to serve him. My first responsibility is to live and do the things that he's called me to do. Does your life bear the inscription? 
holy to the Lord of hosts, set apart for God himself. That's what he's calling us to if we're going to be that holy people that his word calls us to be. And the places, the places that they built were places that we could never even see today, many of them. There are a few pictures of a few of the gates that are still there. And I hope even in the times to come that I can show you more of them. But many of them have been destroyed, unfortunately, over time. But we're going to take a look here at the gates and I'm just going to talk to you about them briefly. The first gate we have is the sheep gate. And it's mentioned in verse 1. And the sheep gate is a gate. And I actually do have a few of them here. This is just what it would look like. It's not the exact uh, one because the sheep gate is no longer there. This gate would have been one that was right near the, the temple. It was important that the priests were the one working on it because the priests were the ones that were using it. The sheep gate was the gate that they would bring the sacrifice through. And we knew that in the temple there were sacrifices that were a part of their worship to God. And so the, there was this gate that they would lead the sheep through, that they would leave the, lead the goats and the bulls through. So it was an area that people weren't normally going through. It was just those that were leading them in and bringing them forth to be sacrificed. We'll talk more about that in a little while. The next one is a fish gate. The fish gate was located on the west. And let's actually go back to the uh, map as well and you can see where it's located. The fish gate's down towards the bottom. So if we zoom into that bottom part right there. So you'll see the fish gate right there. And the fish gate, and we can go back to that picture. That fish gate was the place that was like a fortified area. It was the place that had two towers. So it's mentioning two towers. You can see them on the side there. And those two towers were a part of the defense system. They were close to the citadel, uh, and that's where the, the soldiers were. This represented the security, the defenses of the city. And so it was important that people would put their work towards seeing the defenses being brought back up and operational again. You then go next, and you have the old gate. This was normally called the, the corner gate. And uh, you can see that as we go back to the map. You'll see where the next gate is there. And that, that old gate was one that was also a continued part of the defense system and provided some of the protection along the way. As you go down the wall some more, you'll see the valley gate. The valley gate was the area where Nehemiah began his investigation. It must have been the area that he was able to, uh, to stay and to stay in that home. And it was the area that he probably had the least resistance to go and look at. So the valley gate's down there uh, towards the bottom. And it's the place where he came out and went back in and that gate was restored as well and there, there was a that's where the longest section of the wall is that section of the wall is over 1700 feet that goes between the valley gate on you then have the next area is the dung gate actually let me go back to the valley gate for just for just a moment you'll really be excited to hear about the dung gate i know <laughs> the valley gate is interesting because it's called the valley gate and and you know God's word promises and he promises us that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid he's with us. I think about the valley gate being the place that Nehemiah set out from and he saw all that he saw, all the hopelessness and yet God was with him and so he was able to persevere even in the valley, at the valley gate. Nehemiah was able to persevere and see the work that God wanted to do. I just, as I see some of these gates, you'll see there's some spiritual significance even to the names of them that the people took refuge in. And for this one, knowing that God is with us in the valleys, knowing that when we humble ourselves and we walk with him, there's nothing that he can't do in and through our lives. Uh, you look at the Dung Gate, which is next, and it's just like its name sounds. Uh, it's the southernmost part of, of it. So I know the way that it's showing you on the map, but that's actually the southernmost part of Jerusalem. This was the area where uh, the filth was left. Um, this was uh, near where Gehenna was. If you know Gehenna is the place where Jesus talks about there being burning and gnashing of teeth. It was actually pictured as hell 
um, you know, the imagery because of the burning and the heaps of trash and waste that went out of the dung gate. Do you realize, let's go back to the picture here, that there are people that had to work on the dung gate, that God has actually called some people into the mess? And you can look and say, man, um, how could they do that? You know why they do it? Because God put them there. And they're willing to get messy for the purposes of God. Are you willing to get messy for the purposes of God? Jesus was. So there are people working on the dung gate and there they are and they're willing to go to that place because they know even even there needs the attention that the Lord would have for them. Continue continue to go around. You see the fountain gate. The fountain gate, this is is a very strategic uh, location. It's near the pool of Siloam, which carries a lot of significance for David and for others. Uh, There's a spring that came down from Gihon that fed clean water here. And so whenever people would want to come against them, they could poison the water supply or stop up the wells and the springs. So for this fountain gate to be kept there was very, very important for it to be secure, for it to be kept and held. And so right next to that, you see the water gate. So these gates are very important and strategic so that the people could be refreshed. I think about the fountain of the refreshing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said there will be now streams of living water that comes out of your life when you put our faith in him. For these people who for so long had the area where they would be able to provide refreshment stopped up and stopped off. They couldn't go to the valley gate whenever it was lying in ruins because there were people that would come and attack them. They lived without that refreshment. This being restored for the people began to show them again that they can find everything that they need in the place that God had called them to. You see the Ophiel, and that was on the south hill near the temple, um, and, and that was uh, near getting towards the horse gate there. There's another tow- tower there. You can't, I haven't found any pictures or any ruins from that yet. You have the horse gate. This was an area where the military was kept. This was another strategic area, and they're building up again so that they can be able to defend themselves. And so they had that area, the horse gate, taken care of. Then you have the east gate. That's probably the most significant gate. Uh, that is called the golden gate. It's the gate that Jesus himself went through. It's the gate that Jesus went through when he went into the temple. It's the, the most prominent gate. Whenever we look at the Lord's return in scripture, the thought is he would enter through the golden gate. He would come in through the golden gate, and that was what the promise was. And so you can see in a lot of the... Uh, Right in front of that, you can see a bunch of tombs. Those are all the tombs that are right there. When they believe that is where the Lord will return in the Kidron Valley for the apocalypse at the end of time, whenever he comes and those that will rise are there. So you have uh, Jewish people, Christians, and Muslims. This is the most expensive piece of real estate in the world because people want to be buried right there so that when the Lord returns through the Golden Gate, they will be the first to see him. I'm good. I'll take anywhere. Um, <laughs> So you have that gate there, and then you have the gate of uh, Hamphentad, and that's in verse 31. It's located at the northeast corner of the city. It's a military connotation. It's the mustering of troops, the numbering, inspection. All of those things are happening right around that area. So again, each person's working in a very important area of the gate. But I want to bring us all the way back, because Nehemiah, in the word says, he stops at the very place he began, at the sheep gate. He stopped at the sheep gate. And the sheep gate probably being the simplest gate. It's not the golden gate. It's not the military gate. It's not the horse gate. It's not the fish gate. It's not any of the other gates, but I believe this is the most important gate that's mentioned here. Do you know why? Because many people for many times were looking to every single other one of those gates for where their hope was going to come from. 
Many of us, we look to all those kind of gates in our lives and we look for the big, beautiful gate and say, where does my help come from? Is that, that's going to be at the perfect circumstance, the perfect thing coming into my life. Is it going to come through the horse gate? This is what the people of God were looking for. They're saying, when the person who's going to save us from our sins, to give us a hope and a future comes, which gate is he coming through? Is he coming through the golden gate? Is he going to come through there as, as our great ruler, as our high and mighty king? Is he going to come through the military gate, through the fish gate? Is he going to come or through the horse gate mil- with a military conquest to overthrow our enemies? How will he come? How can we be saved? Do you know that their redemption would ultimately come not through any of those gates? Even as Jesus came through the golden gate, what did he come on? A donkey. Their hope would really come through the sheep gate. And although Jesus didn't walk through that sheep gate, he really did in many ways. Whenever John saw him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only way that those people, although this would bring great hope and excitement to the people, the true hope and excitement and the true future for the people of God would come through the sheep gate, through the one who would be willing to humble himself to the point of death and die on a cross for the sins of humanity. And today, you can be a part of all the rebuilding that you want. You can do everything you want and search for all the answers to life in every other place and at every other gate, but you will never find wholeness, hope, and forgiveness unless you look to the sheep gate, to the one who came, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins. And if you would be willing to acknowledge that sacrifice and to put your hope in him and to ask him for the forgiveness that he wants to bring into your life. He can cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he can give you a brand new life. I love that the sheep gate shows us the most important place for every single one of us to be positioned in the work that God has, humbled at the feet of Jesus, the only one who can take away our sins. So would you bow your heads and your hearts with me today? And will we just position ourselves at the, at the sheep gate before the Lord of all? He could come through the golden gate. He could come as the high and mighty king, but he came as a servant. He came as the one who died for your sins. And today, the shame, the guilt, the condemnation, all the judgment that you feel, he's taken it upon himself. You don't need to try to earn your way to him. You don't need to try to earn his forgiveness in your life. It is a free gift that's extended to you right now. And God wants to do a mighty rebuilding work in your life. It's one where he can forgive you, where he can give you a hope and a future. But today you need to acknowledge him. You need to acknowledge your need for him. You need to open your life, open your heart, open your hands and receive him to yourself. God's word says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to call upon his name today. So today, everyone within the sound of my voice, whether you're watching online or or listening in some other environment or at some other time, this is a holy moment, a set-apart moment for this reason. God wants to save people's lives and eternities. So today, if you're willing to acknowledge that you need Jesus in your life and you're willing to turn to him, I want you to lift your hand right now at the sound of my voice. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand right now if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Just lift your hand right where you're sitting. No one's looking around. It's a moment of acknowledging your need for him. I see your hands over here. Is there anyone up in the balcony on the main floor watching an overflow? If that's you, just lift your hand up before the Lord. 
Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. I see you in the balcony right there. Is there anyone else? Amen. Hands are going up around the room. I want you to say these words from the bottom of your heart. They're not magic. It's the posture of your heart turning to God that matters most. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you came and that you died and that you rose again. I believe you have the power to save. And today I turn to you and I turn away from my sin and I walk with you all the days of my life. Help me to experience the forgiveness that your word promises and I commit to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a moment right now if you said that prayer and I want you just to realize the weight of what's just happened. God says in his word that he has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. And I'm just believing today that for somebody in this room, as you have said that prayer for the first time, you have felt literally the weight of the world come off of you. And you have felt God separate it from you. Can someone give praise to God for what he's just done in someone's life today? I would ask you just to take one more step if that's you. I don't want you to leave here today without telling someone about it. I didn't see you. I didn't see your face. I saw your hand. But I know there are several of you around the room. And today it's going to be so easy for you to just leave here and never tell another soul. But I want you to be bold. I want you to take a step. I want you to tell a pastor, one of the people that are coming even right now and will be praying down here at the altar, let someone know that you made that decision so that we could walk with you and help you along the way. Let's the rest of us, let's all stand together. Today we're going to just continue to sing. We're going to place Jesus at the center of our lives. And I just pray that as you think about the reason why you're doing what God's called you to do, who you are, a holy set-apart people that God would speak to you and that you would ask him to lead you to the places he wants you to do the work he's called you to. A lot of applications in our lives and even in the work he has for us in the next months. So God bless you. May he be with you. You can come forward if you need prayer. You can continue to worship or you can go out in the foyer and save your conversations for there. God bless.